A lot of people do what they do. They work in companies and they know their customers, but they don't know what's happening in the industry. And I'm standing on the sidelines of this premiership game playing out and I can see things that they can't see. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by Pri Sarkar. Pri is the founder and director of Switch Recruitment. He enables startups and scale-up SaaS companies to scale their teams in APAC. LinkedIn rated him as a top 1% recruiter. Amazon rated his book Switch as a number one bestseller in the careers and job hunting category. He's a member of the Pinnacle Society, a select group of industry-leading recruiters globally. Pri, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Mark, thank you so much. I am so excited to join you today. Awesome. By the way, I've ordered your book on Amazon, but I have to admit, I've not read it yet. Uh, it's on its way. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so let me just set the scene here because you referred to me by multiple Pinnacle Society members, namely right. Michelle Parchman and Kathy Stewart are ones I know. I'm sure I've been given your name by others as well, but they've both been on the show as well. And I always Fantastic. ask my guests, yep. like, um, who else I should interview? Because I'm you know, great people know great people, right? It's the same in recruiting. You know, networking is how you 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 find that you know that talent. Um, and uh, when your name came back, I was like, I know that guy. We because uh, we worked <laughs> together back in 2015. We and, did. And um, from the looks of it, we've both come a long way since then. <laughs> um, you, like you've changed your company name. You've published a book. You've become a trusted advisor in a crowded space, which I'd love to get into because you're doing some fantastic things. First, could you just briefly talk about your decision to become a recruiter? It's amazing how many people start a recruitment business with no industry experience. And, you know, apart from maybe interviewing for their own department when they worked in cubicle land and some people buy a franchise and others just think, how hard can it be? And they just jump in. And uh, so you were the country sales director at FedEx. Why did you think starting a recruitment business would be a good idea or even something you wanted to do? Well, I think the the desire was sown in my, my heart a long time back, but the timing was never right because I kept climbing in my uh, career with FedEx. And then the decision was made for me because on the eve of the GFC, uh, we got called into an office and they shut down four locations in Asia, uh, the division that I worked for. And I found myself um, heading back in, you know, a taxi home telling my wife that, you know, uh, I didn't have a job. So uh, that was the, 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 the genesis point. And uh, from that point onwards, um, I think, you know, the way I see things is that uh, no matter how dark it is in the valley, um, a, a divine whisper or serendipity can change the course of your life. And that's what happened uh, to me. Uh, it, it was the first, um, the first three months were really hard. Uh, we had two kids under, under five. It was, uh, you know, a single income family and uh, we had bought a house not 12 months back and broken the piggy bank and thrown it away. <laughs> so, um, but from that point, uh, once you've gone through that, everything else in retrospect seems easier. What a wonderful way of framing that, Pri. And by the way, for 
listeners outside Australia, GFC is global financial crisis, right? That's what you guys called the Great Recession in, in 2008. Um, yeah. And I love the way that in retrospect, what seemed like a disaster and, you know, a real putting your family's financial security in jeopardy turned out to be a serendipitous moment, which has led you to bigger and better things that may not, you may not have taken this direction if, you know, things had, if you hadn't lost your job at, at FedEx. So it, sometimes you don't know if it's your best day or your worst day in the, at the time. It's only with hindsight that you can really evaluate things properly. I was, I also had a rough time during 2008 and I also had a young family and a mortgage that, you know, it was scary, scary times. So, mm. so then since then, after the first three months, which were hard, you started, you know, getting some results and, and the business started sort of doing well. And I'm sure there was many ups and downs in the, you know, in the road after that, but what do you feel have been the key inflection points in your business that have kind of led to this real success that you're you're having now? I think that um, having uh, when we got made redundant, I was in an incredibly it was such a surprise because I had taken a team, a sales team from eighty percent performance over the last three years from when I started in 2005 to 130% at, in 2008. So we had wow. gone from a, uh, you know, uh, a level three to a premiership team, which was doing exceptionally well. And the last thing you would expect was for the business to be disbanded. So the first thing that I did was I actually helped these guys and girls get a job. So I, you know, called as many people as I knew, um, gave as many references, sold, sold as hard as I could and helped people get jobs. Um, and then uh, started figuring out what we were going to do. The first thing was to write to the bank and say that I actually couldn't afford my mortgage. Um, and uh, moving fast forward, just really figuring what I could do. And being a sales manager, the first thing I did was actually reach out to a couple of small business owners who in the past we had one person who met me at a breakfast and said, you sound really passionate. Come and help me with sales. So I called uh, John and I said, hey, John, do you still want some advice? He was like, sure, come on over. And uh, that became was the genesis inflection point where uh, he said, my business is stuck in the 80s. They were a very successful but stagnant business. And I my first 12 months was just consulting, listening to problems. And if I could just put three you know, underlines when you just listen to problems and you want to solve things and help people, the magic happens, right? Regardless of the situation. So that was one. Um, I saw that they were, I was doing a lot of coaching, training. Um, and when I realized that they were having a problem finding good salespeople, I was like, hang on, I know how to find good salespeople because I had learned uh to reach out to some of the best salespeople with the competition or out there in the market and really nurture some relationships. So that was a very natural transition, having been the salesperson, having been the sales manager, to actually start headhunting salespeople, not depending on job ads. And 
that was probably the most natural leap I made into that next season. Um, so that was one. And uh, fast forward a couple of years, I then, you know, uh, really had to uh, start to um, build a team um, and then basically uh, go from there. So I'd say in four stages, I think, number one, learning how to uh, just listen with empathy and care and solve problems. You know, you just, you will find solutions. Um, le so learning to listen, learning to sell, uh, learning to lead and learning to build. Those were the four distinct uh, inflection points in my journey. Love that. Great structure. Thank you. It sounds like the listening and the empathy was something you already had, right? And so it was just applying that in a, in a new field. But um, one that in, now that you've described that journey, it does seem like it was a natural fit because you were already headhunting and recruiting salespeople for your own team. You then applied that to your, your client companies. Um, talk about learning. So then learning to sell. But you, again, you already had a sales background, but so it was just learning in this new context. What, what was the change in your approach to selling when you started your search firm? Mark, learning how to sell with FedEx on your business card versus learning from your backyard with, you know, in your laundry room, trying to sound like a professional with the neighbor starting up their lawnmower and the dog barking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me more about that. I don't, I don't understand the analogy. Right. So I went from a high street office with the FedEx brand, yep. which did 90% of the work, if not 99% of the work, that was easy uh, to, you know, starting my own company. Who are you? Where are you from? Why should I listen to you? Right. I think that it, there is a world of difference when you've got to put food on the table and you don't have right. a brand behind you. So that's that That was my point. And I actually did have all of those. You know, I ha I've tried, I've been making calls to get some business and the neighbors started their lawnmower or the dog's been barking and, you know, there's like, <laughs> oh, oh this I guy's... see, I see. Literally, like <laughs> you're trying Literally. to call, you're trying to do business with them and the dog's barking. That's right. Right, right, right. Hilarious. So what, um, what was the key takeaway or learning from that evolution from selling with a big brand behind you where people are, they're sort of buying into you, but they're also, they're mainly buying into the, the brand to the other opposite where they've never heard of your company and you have to build that trust from scratch. I think the number one thing is that, and it took me a little while because I've tried so many different scripts, which didn't work. Um, I think you've got to see the value in yourself that you are bringing to people and then be able to show that value because people will pay for value that they can see. So when I call a sales VP and say, I'm one of the rare few recruiters who's been a quota carrying sales rep, a sales manager, and I now recruit salespeople for other people like you, that's a sound bite that's loaded with value and I don't need a big brand name. Okay, great. Good, good insight. That's like, there's, you learn so much when you're scrappy and you have to like fight for every piece of business, right? And, you, and you're like actually putting food on the table is at stake. It's, um, you know, 
it's it's a sort of trial by fire. Um, so then you, how long, like, so what's the timeline here? So 2008, you started and then getting to the point where you were getting traction in the market, you, you were winning customers and then moving on to stage three, uh, learning to lead. What, what was that time frame before you started growing your team? So, um, it, it took me about three to five years, Mark. I, you know, I've listened to your big biller summits as long as that you've had them around. So I've bought everything that you've had, you know, even before I could afford a coaching fee. Right. Wow. That's Um, cool. That is a <laughs> it goes back a long ago. time. That is a long time ago. <laughs> right. Uh, so the the point that I was making was that um, it took me about two and a half years where I was consulting. Uh, basically, I would, you know, uh, coach business owners or sales managers or general managers of companies, whatever put food on the table, coaching, training. And I started recruiting probably in my, at the end of my first year. And at that time, it was survival mode. It was pretty much year one was half what my corporate salary was. But by the end of the second year, it was 2.5 times. So at that point, I was really busy and I was earning well. And I had to think about what do I really want to do? Do I want to be a lifestyle recruiter? Mm -hmm. And my passion was with um, building and leading teams because when I look back, uh, that was something that came naturally. So I moved into uh, niching and specializing. So from an individual for the first two and a half years who was doing uh, a number of different things, I had coaching uh, clients and uh, training clients and um, some recruiting clients, I said thanks um, and just focused on the recruiting. And then that doubled over the next two years. So, you know, I wish it was three months or six months. I hear some people who just take off like rockets yeah, maybe it's it. it <laughs> having said that, that's really where we went with the next phase, um, and really, it all came from doing it myself, getting to that next stage, uh, you know, finding the resources, and then getting my uh, first uh, researcher. You know, I I, I had to get uh, someone who was helping me with a lot of the data and the. Uh, I, I was always in it for the conversations with people that I love and enjoy uh, the, you know, the backend stuff is always uh, an effort. So we went with a researcher and then from a researcher to a researcher and a recruiter. Uh, but I have always been um, the, um, the client advisor, you know, that is my moment of flow. I could do that from 8am to 8pm with my eyes closed and enjoy every moment of it. So yeah. Fantastic. There's a few little golden nuggets I just want to highlight in what you just said. So, um, first of all, it there was the um, specialization. So, what year did you really focus in on, like IT and software sales, as your niche? I think it took me about um, three to four years. Okay, and it was a transition because I realized that having I used to be um, an account executive for an Oracle consulting partner in Chicago. Yeah. And um, so that was a very easy conversation. Um, and as I started targeting software companies, you know, and, you know, it was not like, hey, thanks for calling us. They're like, who are you? Who else are you working with? So today, if you ask me, I'd drop, 
you know, an Amazon and a Microsoft in the latest chatbot company, they'd be like, wow, that's great. <laughs> Back then I had no one else, you know. I'm right, like, right. You know, so they're like, you know, and and it's just really interesting how things have worked out. So it it was a gradual process where I was just doing sales for any company mm-hmm. through to winning my first software uh, company account, you know, making some great placements, earning the right to use them as a reference, expand, expand. So it was that that was the process. Great. So special niche, niche, number yeah. one niche, and then uh, specializing within uh, my efforts, which was identifying that I was best with clients, um, uh, generating business and uh, serving and advising, and then, you know, finding other people who were really good at uh, research and recruitment so that the sum was greater than the parts. Right, exactly. I want to move on to that because, so the first, um, you niched down from recruiting just any type of salespeople to salespeople within software. But then the next evolution was recognizing what your strengths are and then building a support structure so that you can be in flow. You're working with clients, advising clients in the sort of, you know, uh, account manager capacity and you're supported by a researcher who's, you know, uh, sourcing, putting, you know, the candidate list together and then a recruiter, presumably who's, um, then working with those candidates to qualify them to, to, to present opportunities and so on, and then bringing them to you. And then you can focus on a, what you're best at. And, um, that's going to allow you as, so you said sum is greater than the you know the whole whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That allows you to um, to increase your overall billing. So that's fantastic, and that's such a valuable. I think there's a few people, and I've I've ha- I've interviewed many of them on on my show who can be purely solo, you know, big billers. Yeah, that's definitely not me. I I just and I. I don't think it's replicatable. Like I think there's a few unique human beings who can who can do this all by themselves and they do like everything themselves and they can still perform at a high level. But I think it's the 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 surer way to success is the way that you've done it, which is focus on what you're best at and then hire people with complementary, you know, skills and and um who like doing different things to to and then as a as a team, you can perform at a very high level. Yes, I think that that has been a pivotal um, change in what I did because I tried being a solo and I was a solo for the good, good five years, but over a period of time when you're working 12 hours, you're still on when you get home. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, you, you, you're stressed out most of the time. You're either delivering on jobs and you don't have new jobs. You go after new jobs and then, you know, you... You, you blank out a quarter. It's just, uh, it's hard. You know, you're constantly watching, you know, the, do you have enough cash? And so it, the focus, it just, it's a, for me, it was a downward spiral. Um, though I was doing, I was doing well, it was hitting the numbers, I had great clients, but it was a bottleneck for me. Right. Uh, I had to, I had to get people in to, keep up with the growing opportunity and actually the way I see it, you know, in the startup phase, you can fake it till you make it. Yeah. But then with a bit of profit, you have to make it until you don't have to fake it anymore. 
right? <laughs> so we're describing it. Yeah, totally. So like what you're describing, number one, <clears throat> the peaks and troughs is symptomatic of being a solo 360 degree recruiter. Um, it's just so hard to be consistent when you're one person because you're switching from business development mode and then you get an opportunity. You want to maximize on that. You want to deliver for your customer and you, you know, and also that's where the money is. You've now got this order you need to fulfill. And then you switch into recruiting, but then the pipeline dries up. And I, I, this is just such a common um, thing, which, you know, there's a ver- variety of solutions to this, but I think the one that you've uh, come up with is, um, is smart. Are you worried about keeping your recruitment firm up to date with the latest technology? After all, your clients expect you to be ahead of the curve. But how do you select the right tech for your recruitment firm and make sure that you earn enough new business as a direct result to make back the cost of your investment? Which is why our friends at iIntro provide in-depth coaching alongside their technology to help you get the most out of your investment. They offer an extensive suite of tools, but let's just take one example, their behavioral assessment tool. It's built right into their online system, so you don't have to buy or learn a whole new platform. They also include training on how to use behavioral assessments to improve your pitching technique, while also increasing the longevity of your placements to a staggering 96% after 12 months. For a free demo of iIntro's suite of recruitment tools, including behavioral assessment, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Remember, when you engage with our sponsors, you also help support this podcast. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained, then follow the instructions to get started. So could you then describe your your, your building phase, which, because um, you've gone through, working through those feast and famine cycles for the first few years, to now you've scaled to a team of 10 people. Could you describe, like, what is your business model and how is that? evolved all right so the i think i've done it the wrong way the first time every time <laughs> you know um i uh you know i in the beginning i didn't have the cash so i tried to obviously get in people who would work on commission and that didn't work uh because there is a level of integrity that I want to operate with and very short-term mindsets just lead to bad outcomes. So that was an immediate values clash. And on a side note, my big aha only after 25 years in the industry is that all friction comes down to values. So if you're clear about your values, uh, building a team gets a lot easier because you can recognize that. So um, we went from that to um, hiring people who were a good match on values, wanted the same things that we wanted, you invested in them and um, and they stayed and they loved it. So uh, in essence, today, the team that we have, um, the structure is I've got three uh, what I call practice managers because we don't just recruit for sales. We recruit for all go-to-market functions, sales, pre-sales, channel, marketing, uh, professional services. And um, each of the team leaders uh, focus on one of the functional areas and have they have a recruiter and a researcher on their team. So basically what I was doing as a team of three, the 360 
it split down into 120, 120, 120 is what my uh, three pods look like today. And so they're uh, building that practice and that that works exceptionally well. It helps us to say yes to clients and deliver um, whatever talent pool that they're looking for in five to 10 working days. Love it. Wow. Okay. So hang on a sec. I'm taking notes as we go along here because I want to f- be sure to follow up on certain things. So you you created the basic unit of your business is a team of a pot of three. And initially you were like the practice manager, the, you know, the, the, the team lead and the kind of client liaison person. And then you had the researcher and the recruiter supporting you. And the way you've scaled is just by replicating that same basic unit. And now you've got three practice managers who basically you've promoted yourself and developed them into, to, to replace you in that slot. But, and that allows you to then multiply to, to, you're still managing three people directly. That's right? correct. But uh, that gives you the leverage to be able to, um, to grow the team. It's smart. Why? So explain your 120 degree model and why you like that in particular. I like that specifically because I believe that the number one skill that uh, a, a recruiter can have is situational awareness. And right. when you look at, uh, you know, the three um, areas is wh- who are the companies, what are the jobs, and who are the candidates. Uh, you really need, in my opinion, a researcher who uh, lives and breathes all things that are data and information mm-hmm. so that you, at any point of time, know who are the right clients, who are the right you know, where are the opportunities and who are the right candidates for the job. You need to have a recruiter who is uh, all day, every day speaking to 20 plus candidates, you know, pitching opportunities, um, ensuring that we are proactive outbound and, um, you know, uh, connecting with them. And then you need someone who is solely focused on the client ecosystem, which is, you know, uh, spending time with clients, um, with preps, debriefs, uh, advising, listening, and then going after new clients, um, whether it's in a similar ecosystem or uh, in new areas that we're trying to grow in. And that basically minimizes risk for everyone in the team. Because the one thing I learned as, as a unit of one is that if you have a new client and you discover that you know either the hiring manager is not a good fit or the hiring process, that's one of two things that we grade our jobs on. A1 is a great hiring manager, great hiring process, and B2 is <laughs> not so great hiring manager and not a great hiring. We can we know we're gonna, you know, it's it's the close ratio on that is very low. So long story short, that specialization allows each person to really embrace that skill and build and get really, really good at that. Love it. It makes total sense. So just to clarify, by the way, I want to get really granular now because we've talked about like conceptual ideas and and kind of the, the journey, but this is what I always try and do pre on this show is get actionable insights Yes, and yes. that people, because then they not only get inspired by your story, but then they can actually apply some of what you've taken years and years to to learn. So, um, the researcher is in charge of all things data on the client and the candidate side. So they're just looking at 
building those data sets and mapping out the market, the the, the client universe, as well as all the the, the talent in in and is uh, in their practice. So I guess it makes it manageable because they're only researching the candidates within that particular function. I guess am I un- understanding correctly? Absolutely right. Okay. So, uh, yep. So they're so they're um, finding names, but also contact information, uh, adding them to your database. Uh, so then you've got the recruiter, whose their job is outbound and connecting, engaging, getting you know relationships with those candidates. Qualifying, but also you know pitching opportunities, getting them in, in interested in working with your client companies, and then you've got the practice manager whose job is to um, use the data that the so the, I guess the research is feeding data to both the recruiter and the practice manager. the The recruiter then has to reach out to those candidates and 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 connect with them, and the practice manager is doing the same on the on the client side. Am I am I on track so far? Absolutely. Okay, you're absolutely so, right. Question then: What are the uh, the metrics or the how uh, like what is what is the result that each of those three people is accountable for, th- apart from billings that lets them know that they're being successful? Yeah. So essentially, in my team, we have uh, uh, we have soft targets around minimums and yep. ideals which is for each individual, we want to see a contribution of 20 placements in a year. Okay. And so at a typically at a 40% close ratio, um, you know, so essentially uh, for 20 placements, you would need to get 50 jobs. Yeah. So when it comes to the, let's start with the practice manager. The practice manager is responsible for managing a portfolio of clients that would, you know, you could have... Um, 20 accounts or so with maybe 30 or 40 hiring managers and basically ensuring that they are um, spending a majority of time talking to them, identifying opportunities, uh, and then prospecting for new net new opportunities. So let's say I'm the practice manager. Um, I call someone, connect with them. They said, yep, we're hiring. You know, Can you help me? Yes, you can. Let's say it's a cybersecurity account executive. I then organize a briefing call and at the briefing call in our team, I will have the recruiter, the researcher and myself. Smart. I I want people to take note of that. This avoids like so many situations where things are lost in translation. You know, if you, if you play this game, uh, like I remember when uh, having a birthday party, I was probably like five or six. My parents organized a birthday party with all my little friends. And we played this game where you sit in a circle and you whisper some something in the next person's ear, and then they whisper it to the next person. And by the time it goes around the whole circle, it's completely different <laughs> to what the original uh, information was, right? So you get the recruiter, the researcher, everybody on that call, and that way they're hearing it directly, and everyone's on the same page. I think that's smart. And if that's not possible, I recommend people record that conversation if it's a Zoom call or whatever. And then the re- researcher or whoever wasn't able to make that call, they can they can rewatch it. Absolutely. And so it gives everyone the same information and that you're on the same page. And then from thereafter, the researcher will um, 
build out a list of candidates that we need to talk to from both our existing database, we've got 25,000 people, as well as LinkedIn augmenting anyone who's come new or we know could be leaving or was not in our database. But basically, we want good data quality in the next first two days. In the first two days, we want a list of, say, 40 to 60 potential um, uh, candidates, which then moves to the recruiter. The recruiter knows that two days from now, they will be recruiting on the job. They come in in the morning um, and they will then um, action a four-step campaign, which we call an E1, R1, E2, R2. It's an email or a LinkedIn message um, saying, you know, hey, Mark, um, wanted to make you aware. Let's go through the, uh, you know, high-level pitch, three bullet points. Um, Would you be open to having a conversation? So E1, follow that up with a recruit call, high degree of personalization. Hey, Mark, we know three people from the company that you're currently working at or previously worked at. I can see you've done one, two, three. This is an opportunity to just to get to know you, what you want, and discuss one or two potential opportunities. Let's have a conversation. So E1, recruit call. Um, and at each stage, you get a percentage that come back. Yes, no, maybe. And then we do it again. So that's, uh, you know, that's like a, uh, six-day cadence, so two days for uh, research, six days for outreach, and at the end of that, you should have, you know, three to five potential candidates that you can introduce to the client. Um, The recruiter will send it to the client and copy in the account manager. The account manager will drive the, you know, we want to make sure that we get maximum interviews from that, so he or she will, um, she will call um, the client and have a conversation and get them over the line. The recruiter will organize and line up diaries and get everything happening. And um, yep, that's the process. Amazing. Thank you so much for that detailed description. So the researcher's metric is more around um, being able to deliver the, uh, sh- the, the, the long list of 40 to 60 relevant candidates within two days. Is that the that is correct. So and then they, they, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, I was just wondering and then so the, apart, is that keep them busy full time or do they have other like in the background they're do, they're doing other list building research kind of all the time as well or Yeah, I can't think of a time in the last uh, as long as uh, barring a couple of days before Christmas where our researcher doesn't have the next job to go to. Yeah. So th- okay. there's the next job and the next job and the next job. So yeah. essentially the research, and I think to answer the bigger question that you know people might want to know, is that the researcher uh, is is bonused on the pod's ability to make placements, and it. So we have so you know the account manager gets uh, they get uh, a percentage or a bonus based on um, the contribution of the placement. The recruiter will get uh, recognized on that. So we. Um, we uh, we provide a compensation for every interview that happens because that is a unit of value to the client yep. as well as for the placement. So it drives a lot of good team behavior. Uh, the awesome. three of them all rowing in the straight, it's, there's, there's no solos. There's no, one thing I've learned is that for longevity and for low friction, uh, there's mutual accountability between the three people. Uh, I haven't had to 
pull someone up on a conversation about you know not making lists quickly enough or not making enough calls or not getting um so yeah that's smart so it's really a the incentives are based upon team working together to get the results that's right and um which is smart because nobody wants to let their team member down be the one who you know um was holding us back from from making this placement right so if anything it means people probably work harder than they would if it was just their own their, themselves who who stood to benefit um go ahead and i was just going to say the the value proposition proposition to the client is we're yeah. structured like an executive search firm we're not your contingency recruiter with one yeah. person trying to balance 12 jobs yeah so if and and i say this if we accept the assignment so mm. there is an if good because if we are one of five recruiters i'm going to say thanks no thanks Things, right right if we really want the account it's got to be one of two recruiters until we can demonstrate that because three are better than one any given day you can get lucky but we're given the same set of circumstances uh you bring me a role and you've got someone who makes the best available list in the next 24 to 48 hours you get some, someone it's it's a relay team they're going to outrun anyone on the same amount of distance and it shows with the results so that's what we tell clients that if you engage us you're actually getting three you do not need two and three recruiters you have got three recruiters and we will give it to us for two weeks and see what we can do for you i love this pre this is i've not heard that way of describing it before so it's a relay team which means that you can outrun any individual recruiter but not only that if the client has the argument well we 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 need three recruiters on this and you say well we've got we'll give you three recruiters with just within one one firm that is so smart i love that um not heard that answer to that objection before and i i actually just want to circle back to two things that i didn't quite understand one is you said that uh they need to contribute to plenty 20 placements a year does that mean like as a team each practice needs to deliver 20 placements a year well if the if the practice is three people the yeah, guidance we want to hit 60 um and that's how it goes and basically if we are ahead of that then the practice can hire another person in there whether we need another researcher or another recruiter so these are seedling practices Got which it. will grow Got so th- that practice could be five or seven people comfortably it just yes. we've got that simple uh, metric so everything is around the placement you know billings average themselves out okay. and as a company so for example we made 113 placements last year um we sponsor a child for every placement we make so we sponsor 113 kids wow. um, in in third world countries which uh, again m- it goes beyond what's good for the client good for the candidate good for the team member but also someone else so it i yeah. saw that on your website i think that's so powerful because not just i mean mainly i mean you're doing you're making a positive difference in the world which is which is awesome but also it just gives extra meaning to this job the thing with this is a hard job right this is it can it's it's the emotional highs and lows it's you know it it's it's tough and then obviously you can make really good money and that but that only gets you so far in terms of motivation right so what people also especially younger people these days are looking for meaning they want to do something that you know 
is has some kind of meaning and and so you're you're providing that as well because not only by making these placements will they earn well but also there there's this other positive impact that they're they're helping to generate yeah look i think that at a, at a very basic level there are three phases that in my opinion most people want uh whether it's me or my team members at one level you want to survive yep you want to succeed and then you want to be significant Mm. however you define for the so it's that journey from survival to significance so right. um when i lost my job my number one you know was put my oxygen mask on and feed my kids and <laughs> look after my family my wife yes. and you know so that was uh, that was complete survival mode uh, it then became a focus on maximizing my productivity and billings and when that happened after a point it started it was it's hard so and the constant uh uncertainty both from the clients end you know jobs go on hold they you know we had a referral you know you, th- you all the dramas that are possible or with candidates how many candidates have we come to a final offer stage and you feel like yes and it's like uh actually uh, i've had a counter offer you know and you've done all the interview training scripts so that gets tiring that gets very very emotionally hard beyond the point and even if you i've had times when i've been billing exceptionally well and it still felt empty it's like okay so what so i think that um uh, making a difference that has always been part of my fabric you know we as a family sponsored kids when i was at fedex but that was for kids but the the you know the point is that when you can make a positive difference on every interaction in it, it just you sleep really well yeah <laughs> regardless <absolutely>. of <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Pri, you're giving so much value. I almost can't keep up to the different threads here of this conversation. So, um, because there's two other things that you, you've just mentioned passing, by the way, so that's survival, success, and significance. I love that. Um, it's a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy of, yeah. of needs, but in a, in a more succinct way. I, I, I like that. Is that your own idea or did you read that somewhere? No, um, look, I... I went off to boarding school at the age of 9 and it okay. was the hardest thing that ever happened to me. Wow. I spent one week straight crying every night. I missed okay. mom and dad. I was they were a thousand miles away and um over a period of time you stop crying. You start figuring out, you know, everything was new, new people, new rules, new situation and you take it one step at a time and you learn what you need to do. Uh once you do that and you make friends you know how to work the the system and you go from survival to success and you know uh did well had losses had wins and then hopefully moved on so i think that's been a theme in my life whether i have lost a job and back to survival mode <laughs> get to success and along the way hey if we can help other people it it just is a lot more fun it's a lot more meaningful uh and it's really nice i called a avp and he said pre um i'm in a meeting but i knew it was you so i wanted to just take your call and say i'll call you back that wouldn't happen to me for nice. my first 5 years but nice. i have made a contribution along the way to these people and so that makes a difference this episode is brought to you by recruitment entrepreneur Recruitment Entrepreneur are the number one investor in startup and scale-up recruitment businesses globally. They've now launched in the USA and are looking to partner with experienced recruiters who are ready to build something for themselves. 
Founded by James Kahn, they've already invested in 45 businesses. When I interviewed James in episode 123, he shared a case study of how they helped a recruiter to start, scale, and sell his recruitment company for $12 million in five years. That company is called Walter James and they were acquired by ZRG. Could you be their next success story? To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. That's VC as in venture capital. Book a call with one of their investment directors and be sure to tell them that you were referred by me, Mark Whitby, at the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. Okay, I want to get into that very shortly, which is how you have become a real trusted advisor and thought leader in your space, because then that elevates everything to it. Like you're already here and then that elevates things. That's when you really start to scale, right? And um, just before we do that, I love the grading system that you've got. We don't have time to go into it. Maybe that's for another day. Um, But we also, we encourage our clients to grade their jobs. If anyone wants to see our scorecard, they can go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scorecard and you can download it for free. And it's just, we think nobody on your team should work a job until you've actually given it a numerical score based on a set of agreed criteria um, and either decided you could reject the job or, and I like how you say to the hiring manager, if we, you know, take on this search, um, or you could negotiate and and try and upgrade the score, uh, or you at least can then prioritize how much resource are we going to put into that. But what the elephant in the room here, which we've just skipped over because there were so many other good things coming, is you're delivering the shortlist within five to 10 days. Is that five to 10 working days? So within two weeks. Yeah. That's a very aggressive time frame, which I love. And I didn't see like you're you've obviously really refined your value proposition here, pre, which, you know, I I there are not many search firms who can deliver the shortlist within five to ten days. So that is that is amazing. And I but I can see how it happens with the little pods and the machine that you've you've built and the team and the relay and and on all those things. But it's powerful to be able to say that to a to a customer. Um, so let's move on to something you've done phenomenally well, which is like really um, becoming that trusted advisor. And um, yeah, like what what was the what was that inflection point where you? things really took off because like you've got the book and I, I believe you've also had a course and you've even won an award from the Australian government. Like when when did all this happen? A series of events. I think as I started recruiting and was placing uh, people, one thing I realized that um, depending on how I position myself, often that is how I was treated, right? So if I position myself as a uh provider of candidates and resumes, uh, sure, I'll be the transactional provider of candidates and resumes. If I tell them a little more of the value that I see in myself is that I'm not your everyday recruiter. I am one of the rare few people who's been a quota-carrying account executive 
um, from nearly getting fired to making club. <laughs> I've experienced it all. Same thing as a sales manager from taking a team from 80% to 130% and now recruiting people, uh, you, they're like, oh, you, you can literally hear people say, oh, so you get, <laughs> you get us, right. right? So you've come in at a level, which is who you are, right? Yeah. That, and, and the other thing I realized was that a lot of people do what they do. They work in companies and they know their customers, but they don't know what's happening in the industry. And I'm standing on the sidelines of this premiership game playing out and I can see things that they can't see. Yeah. So that is an incredible resource to them. So my value proposition to them is that I'm out there moment by moment having conversations with um, the most successful people and the ones who aren't, the most successful companies and the ones who aren't. And use me as a resource. What questions do you have? Right. So when I come and work with you, um, we are genuinely better together. So I'm here to help you win. I genu- And I do, I want to help them win, whether it's helping them build a great team or diagnose a situation with an underperforming salesperson, you know, sh- should they stay or should they go? Or uh, giving them information about um, what best practices out there or what the state of the market is even before we transact. And so I'm always willing to have that conversation. And I do have, I think that's a 20% of the time, it's a conversation which does not lead to a transaction immediately or whether it's for their career, right? This is the situation. They've doubled my numbers, halved my team, whatever. You know, I've got a new boss. What do you think? And so we get into the conversation. Okay, I love it. So so that's the context, but then tell me the specifics of you know, I, I am I right that it, it coincides with the pandemic, or did it predate that? This sort of yes. transformation in, from a very successful search firm into almost a a movement where people like you've got much greater visibility. Thank you. And I did digress. So, so to summarize, went from just having the conversations, have, having more conversations with executives, listening to their problems, and genuinely wanting to solve it it may or may not result in a placement, whether it was their career or their teams. I then started um, uh, writing a book. I felt that there was a need for um, how to find a job in 2020 as against uh, 1990. Oh, you know, I'll update my resume and go up, uh, uh, go apply for jobs to uh, this is a social hiring generation. You know, how do you actually build your brand, connect with the right people, identify the companies that you want to work with and really bring a, a very a digitally transformed approach to, you know, don't worry about your resume. It's it's the people, who, they're looking at your LinkedIn profile and how that's your ecosystem which you can use to drive opportunity. So wrote the book, released the book, had no idea the pandemic would be, you know, hitting us in six weeks from release. And I'm like, oh, great. I can't even have a book launch and do this and that. But you know what? There were a whole bunch of people who needed help. So we shipped 200 books free. We ran 40 workshops. Um, I, I had I recorded a course over two months. I had been, uh, lo- I love learning. So I'd been following a bunch of course creators and um, uh, launched a six-hour course with workbooks. And um, 80% was given away free initially. And then we started looking at outplacement opportunities because we haven't hadn't even thought of that. But there was no recruiting to be done. But we went to companies and said, 
you know, there is a better way to help your people leave than just firing them. And would you be open to considering giving them some outplacement support? And so that then became, that put food on the table for the team. We didn't have to, you know, I wasn't going to because we had had some buffers, but it just helped us completely uh, work through a six, 12 month process with that. And then when we came out of that, um, I think two people who were um, reached out to for community <laughs> awards, uh, that's it up there from the New South Wales government, uh, put in a nomination. And then I get an email one day saying, you need to come to New South Wales Parliament <laughs> for what? And it was this, which was, it was nice. It was never for the award, but it's it, it, when it's done, it was just, oh, that was a moment in time when we just helped. Um, and uh, I think it made us very compassionate recruiters um, because at the end of the day, each one is, is they're a family and, you know, it, it, I work with leaders and them being out of work for four weeks, I know exactly how it felt when I went through it. So, yeah. Love that. So it's Certificate of Outstanding Service yeah. from uh, New, South New South Wales, Wales government. government. That's amazing. Fantastic. But that was in recognition of what specifically of you helping people through the pandemic with your course or? Yes. Yeah, so we gave away, um, I ran, I think over 50 workshops at which there were 500 people. I taught people how to make great executive resumes, how to um, create LinkedIn profiles, how to make a list of target companies that they wanted to work for, how to write um, uh, approaching emails, how to um, do well at interviews by doing you know, what I call consultative interviewing. That was the heart of the content. And we had uh, well over 100 people who who got jobs through that process. So um, Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, that was over and above paid assignments. That's amazing. I love that. So cool. And what, um, by the way, I love your brand, your logo, your book, your website. Everything like is very... Um, What's the word I want? It's economical in that your your messaging is very precise, and you know the the way that you explain your value proposition on the website and everything. It's just really, really well done. What impact has Thank the you. book had in terms of helping you build the business? Because that's a mad like I I actually have had a few people on the show who have written a book and and. It's on my bucket list pre, but I'm intimidated by it because it seems like such an enormous, you know, project. Um, so tell me, like, why you did it and then what the benefit from a, you know, commercial point of view has been. Sure. Um, the backstory uh, is really that um, for over 10 years, I've volunteered um, at my church, uh, okay. helping people find jobs. That that was my area of, uh, on a Friday morning, I turn up and this is from the janitor <laughs> to the CFO. Wow. <laughs> Can't find cool. a job. So I've had so many conversations. I always walk away. I know they were inspired, but I they don't have actually skills and tools. So I've always wanted to do that. So over a period of time, I started capturing what I wanted to um, uh, say to people. Definitely. And then with that work, when people started getting laid off, that that resulted in a book, which it took me about eight months to write. Um, 
wrote the book. But writing a book is great because you can actually create frameworks to communicate things with uh, clarity. And so that helped me become clear on um, on frameworks. And f- so I've got basically uh, a, a four-step framework and within each step there are three frameworks. So, you know, uh, that helps it's easy to action if it's not practical. So people know I'm at uh, this stage, this is what I need to do next and basically go from there. So yeah. Free, just hold that thought. I want to hear the rest, but I want to highlight something you just said, which is so powerful. Um, Clarity. That is what, when I was trying to describe your brand and your website, that was the word I was looking for was it's, there's real clarity, um, which is hard to achieve. It's actually easier to have lots of text and like, uh, over explain things to explain the message succinctly and powerfully with clarity is actually difficult. And it, you've gone through this very, um, diff, like what I find difficult is this process of unpacking everything, you know, and putting it into a framework. And this is so powerful. You're developing essentially intellectual property and digital assets, which take on a life of their own, A, it makes it easier for not just you, but your whole team can then use this language, these models, this clear, clear way of explaining things to with their conversations and with clients, with candidates. And so that's powerful. But secondly, these frameworks and these digital assets that you're creating um, are have a very long tail. And like every... If you send an email, you make a call, like I loved your E1, R1, E2, R2 model, framework, cadence, whatever you want to call it. Um, but each of those emails has a very short tail. It disappears in people's inbox very quickly. The phone calls, you had a call conversation. There is a tail in terms of the relationship potentially, but again, people's memories are short. But when you're putting this type of content out there uh, into the world, it has a very long tail and it's amazing. Like and this podcast is an example of how I'm doing that because like, let's say that I, this episode pre, there's probably going to be about 1500 to 2000 people who listen to this, right? So wow. I try to imagine me making 1500 to 2000 cold calls. <sighs> it's impossible, right? It, it just can't. And I'm doing that. I'm, I'm publishing this every week. So that's 2000 people every week who are, you know, getting this message and then they're subscribing and then they're staying connected. There's a very long-term impact, which is way more than one person by themselves could possibly achieve. And so I love the fact you're, you're doing this. Now, not everyone might write a book, but I would encourage people listening to think, how can I create intellectual capital that adds value for people even when I'm not sitting in front of them. I think that's the message I would give people. Absolutely. And the only thing I'll add to that is that if you are looking at problems, there are, you know, if you made a list of problems that candidates said they had is from, I'm not sure what I want in my next job. So then you build a, you, you write an atomic essay or a short blog post on how to find clarity. That's exactly what I did. So I've got this whole four sections on fit number two on personal branding, number three on targeting the right employers, and number four on how to achieve influence at interviews. Um, and, and that's all come through um, 60 
uh, atomic essays of 500 words each. So you've then got a 30,000 page book. You, you've built it modularly from the bottom up rather than thinking linear. You know, um, I've got to write a book, what am I going to write about? As against make a list of all the problems that you hear. I uh, don't know what to do with my resume. I don't know whether I should stay or should I go. And if you solve each problem at one time and you can write um, uh, uh, a blog, uh, you can create a checklist, you can create a little graphic, which is exactly what I've done with my book. Uh, you then have a body of knowledge that you and your team can consult on. You can deliver real value. And what we found is that um, if you do that, uh, as part of your day-to-day -day recruiting and someone says, hey, you know, recruiting managers, the hiring manager says, I don't have roles, but I'm looking, you know, how do you think you can help me? In the past, I'd say, well, I'll keep you in mind if you have, we have an opportunity. Today, we'll say, all right, on a scale of one to 10, how keen, you know, how eager are you? He said, well, I've got to go now. On that, I said, would you like to spend some time working out a strategy for yourself so that you can self-source opportunities? Not me, put them out as an MPC. That changes the relationship immediately. And that time that you spend with them, helping them with a resume, a LinkedIn profile, how to target employers, they're like, why would you do this when you made yourself redundant? And I said, at the end of the day, I want to help you in. And I don't, you know, I think people realize that we want to help. Yep. And um, Mark, 70% of them will go on to a new role and come back and say, hey, we want to work with you guys. Right. Absolutely. So it, yeah. Yeah. Look, um, this is one of those examples of where delivering value in advance without any guarantee or even expectation of it coming back to you. Ironically, it does always come back in some, mean, not from every single person, but there is definitely a long-term payoff to that sort of behavior and that sort of um, approach to, to, to those relationships and those conversations. Did you want to elaborate on that? Yes, I, and I just wanted to finish that. So as a result of working with about 500 people in whether it was work, group workshops, one-on-one -on -one calls, to and 100 paid uh, uh, sales VPs, CTOs, CIOs, um, we have so much goodwill out there in our industry. It is amazing. And that has been a tidal factor. So we literally, um, over the last, you know, we uh, we tripled in accounts, we tripled in the number of placements, we tripled, we doubled in, in the staff uh, numbers that we had. So that came back. But you're right. I have never asked someone that if I do this, will you do that? We've just, what do you need? Get it done. Make the effort. Don't because people rem, people remember how you make them feel when they are vulnerable, and if you can connect at that level and just help and move on and keep in touch, the odd text, the odd phone call, and, and celebrate with them, um, they would want to work. But that's not why we do it. But it makes it very easy to say, "Hey, Mark, congratulations on your new role." Um, you know, if you're building a team, we'd love to work with you. Why would they work with someone else? It's absolutely genius, pre and. The book and the, I love how, I mean, I'm going to need coaching from you when I write my book because I love your approach of, you know, really break, breaking it down into bite size, you know, 500 word essays with a graphic or a checklist or some, you know, and then that, that then becomes the book over time. That's, that's brilliant. Um, 
But you said something powerful, which I want to I want to leave people with. Goodwill is hard to quantify, but it is. If there's anything missing in the recruiting industry, I and mean, there's a lot of problems and, and challenges with our industry, but there is a distinct lack of goodwill among clients, candidates, and recruiters. You know, and and it's it's a game changer if you can create that goodwill in the marketplace. Um, it, it it it's indescribable how 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 beneficial that is. And, you know, it, it, it's a term I don't hear very many people talking about. In fact, you, I think one of the few people I've ever in our industry, I've ever heard who've even used that word goodwill. Um, and I, I, I really want our listener to think, how can I create goodwill within my ecosystem that I serve? And, um, yeah, there's, there's many ways, but start thinking about that. There's one more thing I'll add there, Mark, that we yeah. didn't talk about enough was that um, if you, uh, I have all of my 10 team members, none of them have worked in recruitment. They've all worked in corporate and I have taken the time and we've created the systems and trainings to bring them up to speed and we have given them the time and basically um, that goodwill starts under your own roof. If we treat people well, they will stay, they will work hard for you, and they will collectively, you will earn, learn, and grow. That has been critical in replicating myself and the, the value proposition that I want to give so I can have an executive speak to any one of my team members and have encountered the same values, which then makes a positive impact for them or the candidates because it start, starts with the team. So I think that uh, that has come together uh, quite nicely and that's a consistent experience regardless. I love that. And look, that could be a whole separate podcast just on hiring, you know, uh, training and retaining people and creating a culture where people have common values. That's, um, let's let's say that's part two, pre, you know, to we can follow up on that another time because that, in and of itself is a lot of owners fall down and it's why they don't grow. It's because that's challenging and it does, it, it doesn't just happen automatically. You have to do it intentionally and, and, and it, it takes time to put those things in place. If, if there's one thing that I've learned early on is that if I can help someone else achieve their goals, they will help me achieve my goals directly or indirectly. If I can help my team members achieve their goals and design the kind of life that they really want, I know I will um, achieve my goals. That's the same with the client or the candidate. And if that's just a day-to-day -day operating system, it, the, it, it does create um, a, a really good ripple effect uh, to make a place you're happy to come to work, to, to have conversations that you're enjoying, to work with clients that are happy to take a call from you whether or not they have a job and it's a good way to live. I love it. One final question is um, Pinnacle Society is based in the US. Uh, so it's a great bunch of people who I, um, I've come to know many of them really well. Um, but how did you get connected to, because I don't think they have an Australian chapter, do they? So you have to travel all the way to the States. That's a long 
that's a long way. How, why did you decide to, to do that? You can see by the smile of my face how much I love, I love the pinnacle people, right? So uh, from, from Gail, Rob Baum, and Jordan Rayboy, Michael Petrak, and on and on and on. These, a lot of these people, it's, I'll, I'll close by saying this, Mark, you have made an amazing impact in this industry by just doing what you do. I, I can go back 10, 10 plus, 15 plus years where you know I had to listen to those audio messages and I would listen to these people and I'm like, wow, I, you know, I've just got to go and action one thing from what I've learned today. So when I got beyond that success phase, I was doing well, I knew it was good, I wanted more and I'm like, I really need to find, it's a lonely job. It is very hard and, and a lonely job to be, even if you're successful, you know, uh, most people don't get what you do. Um, thankfully, my wife does and we, we, we've always talked about things, but big picture, you're just alone. And long, I applied to the Pinnacle Society as a outside chance because it was a US-based organization. And... Um, Lo and behold, after you know, 16 people down to five people being in, invited to San Antonio, I was the first non-North American recruiter to be accepted. So, and that was uh, that—that's uh, something that's very near and dear to my heart. So, my Pinnacle family is in the U.S., and I'm in the U.S. twice a year, and I relish every moment that I spend with all of these people because they're amazing human beings. Leave alone recruiters; they're good people. So, yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Are you going to San Diego in April? I am. Well, I will be there too, Pri. So I that can't wait amazing. to meet you in person after all these years and uh, <laughs> shake your hand and even give you a hug. I would love to uh, I love, love that. You. Yep. Hugs. Right. Absolutely. Great. Okay, Pri. That listen, is such good news. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for bringing so much value and insight to to the Resilient Recruiter listeners. and. Uh, Look forward to meeting you in person. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.